1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As a mom, vegan of 20 years, and entrepreneur, I need a lot of energy. And I turn to Athletic Greens to help me out. Athletic Greens is part of the daily nutrition regimen for thousands of top performers, professional athletes, and health-conscious go-getters worldwide, including USA Cycling and Endurance athletes, so I knew I would trust them. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, and it's a comprehensive all-in-one greens powder engineered to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet and support your body's nutritional needs across the four pillars of health—gut health. immune system energy and recovery and these are all things that i'm super interested in i put a scoop in my smoothie in the morning and it feels amazing to know that i'm set up to feel my best and sustain my energy all day long try for yourself at athleticgreens.com slash lit yoga that's athleticgreens.com slash lit yoga and get lit up Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome, Kibby. So happy to have you on today. Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you. I was really excited. Uh, we were just talking that you are also a Duke grad, mm-hmm. so we have that Duke Blue Devil in common. Oh, yeah. So let's launch right into what got you into the graduate work that you're doing. You're now a postdoc. How did you decide you wanted to go this down this path? Yeah, it's kind of a long
0: journey. I so I eventually came to Duke for my clinical psychology PhD degree, which I just finished, and still work in the same lab as a postdoc. So. I, the main part of my studies was kind of to marry my two interests in both contemplative mindfulness practices and clinical psychology and emotions and all that, all that good stuff. Um, and I got here because I originally was just doing psychology research, but it just didn't feel like enough. Like I really wanted that one-on-one connection. So as I was doing research after undergrad, I also trained in, um, vinyasa yoga teacher training and Thai massage. So kind of going back and forth from Chiang Mai, <laughs> basically learning in like a rice patty <laughs> in the middle of uh, Thailand. So I had this, you know, this research side of me, the scholarly side, and then this also this completely other side, this very body side. And I just realizing how much interconnection there was, right, to like, to connect it to yourself, connected to others, mental and physical health, and what health is in general, um, and what it is, what it means to recover and grow and yeah, and become healthier in a way. So I eventually came to Duke to study uh, mindfulness-based clinical psychology. Um, So different kinds of therapies that involve mindfulness practices and things like that, working on mostly interpersonal relationships and emotions. So
1: long journey, but here I am. And so did your own, did you have anything in your own background that led you down this path? Any of your own history that really like in healing something or um in witnessing psychological i guess disorders or imbalances that people had that really made you become interested yeah i mean all of it <laughs> yeah. i um
0: i grew up um uh, my mom was from hong kong and she came to america and then got divorced uh she struggled with alcoholism for many years and um being an immigrant here just very isolated so it was just kind of me and her growing up and so just seeing what it's like when someone suffers from addiction and then that created my own anxiety uh depression symptoms and different ways of coping like i would cope with studying too hard or just kind of getting really obsessive about work and perfectionism and achievement things like that so i channeled it into a getting a phd but yeah it was my own personal journey of like kind of working through those emotions and Uh, I just, I think in college, I just took, started taking a yoga class just to get some exercise. And my teacher, um, April Martucci, she's like a really big mentor of mine, just really had such a beautiful, let us through through such a beautiful practice of vinyasa yoga, which was so physically challenging. We'd be sweating and just like shaking every class, but also it was a lot of challenging of the mind, like noticing how we're reacting to this, noticing emotions that come up don't run away, just sit with it on the mat, even if you're like screaming inside. And just through that practice, I saw such a shift in the way I saw myself and the way I saw what change and healthiness meant. So yeah. And I I just really connected to that. I connected to, uh, I I have a a tendency to get very intellectualized about things, right? It very in my head. And that just really brought it down to my body. And I learned how to be how to feel at home with my body and use it as a tool for my own growth. And I just, I just really wanted to help other people like me and like my mom and other people and families like this. So I really didn't know how it was going to come about. I just kind of followed the path as it, as I landed on it, but yeah, definitely learning through my own experience and Watching my mom also recover from alcoholism was very inspirational and just, you know, I just have a lot of hope for people who are struggling that they could get somewhere else that they want to be.
1: Now, do you find in your own practice and in your teaching that it is necessary to combine the physical and emotional since they are, as you mentioned, I believe it too, are so intertwined and the body in a way facilitates the feelings that have been harbored um to, to come forth and then then you can process them, notice them, observe them and and respond to them. Do you do that in your own work at all? Or how do you guide people to to be able to at first observe to the feelings that they're having and then, yeah.
0: Good questions. (laughs) (laughs) It's an evolving question because it's such a fun area of exploration that I can't believe that people, that society has split them up into two different things, right? Like Amen, amen. It just doesn't make any sense to me because if it's in the brain, it's and if it's in just your heart or lungs, it's your physical health, but they're all the same organs, not that far away from each other. So it doesn't really make any sense to me. It's all interconnected. Um, I, I think that when I work with patients and with yoga students, uh, I think just maybe the people that I work with, or just society we're in, a lot of people are so in their minds, right? They're we're so distracted and so used to trying to fix things and think through things and be busy, and you know, we're all in our heads all the time, watching Netflix and things like that. And I think that the introduction of using your body as a cue to other parts of your experience has been a huge part of my my own practice but also you know my teaching and clinical work so if people are not in tune with themselves or they're trying to think through their problems and instead of experiencing them just cues of "Eh, what's going on in your body right now like what do you notice what what are you feeling what urges do you have right and someone who might think that they're really anxious can start to feel their bodies and say, actually, I'm just really sad. Like I feel kind of like this heaviness in my chest, or I have an urge to cry or something else. So it kind of using the body gives other people access to parts of their experience that they're, that they just kind of block themselves from by staying up here in their heads, you know?
1: Yeah. On on that note, I'm curious. Why do you think people do have a hard time crying? I mean, I'm sure there is a cultural aspect, maybe societal aspect. It's embarrassing. It feels like you're kind of losing your shit or something. Mm-hmm. But what it what is it that you found that is? I call it the constipated emotion that really mm-hmm. people because because crying is. And expression. And it should be treated as such, just like we sweat when our body needs to thermoregulate yeah. and we, we need to cry sometimes. And there might we might not even know why, but it's a release of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, I guess there's two parts to the question. Why do you think people have a hard time crying? And the second thing is, what do you think is uh, the benefit of crying?
0: Oh my god I love your questions by the way this is just, this is oh, oh I love it. Okay. Um, so any kind of emotional expression as we understand it is a signal to ourselves and other people about your needs. That's how we conceptualize it in, in clinical psychology. It's just it's a signal to show what you need in your internal states and kind of tell the environment that hey, I need something, right? Crying in sadness is a sign of loss or is a sign that you need comfort. It mostly comes with loss and uh, that kind of pain and suffering. But the crying is, is one function of it is to have people recognize that that's what you're going through and to comfort you. Now, a lot of people, um, when they express emotions when they're younger, and they don't get those kind of responses, like they're not comforted, they're gonna learn to do something else, right? They're gonna learn to, Uh, I don't know, get angry or or they do really well in school or any other way to kind of get what they need in those moments. And so if people grow up in environments that they're not comforted, right? And they they aren't encouraged to cry, they aren't loved and shown compassion when they cry, they might get a little constipated, right? They might show it in different ways. And especially I think in this society, we're just so programmed to think that doing and problem solving and achieving are the, you know, the paramount signs of healthy, you know, being a good person. So I think slowing down and being vulnerable is a lot scarier, right? It's
1: mm.
0: it's um, it's not active, right? It's this almost like passive asking for help. And we're not in a society of asking for help, we're in a society of innovating and doing and getting the A's and the money. So I think there's just a lot of um, social and maybe developmental factors that might lead people to have a really hard time just crying.
1: Mm, I like that. And that makes me think of the book Quiet, which Mm. is really about, you know, introvert versus extrovert and how we've misunderstood what that means, which is really an introvert is somebody who derives energy more internal. It doesn't mean that person is unable to go out and socialize. It's just that you can get overwhelmed with, a lot of the social stuff, and that isn't a negative. It's just knowing who you are. And this book, Quiet, really talks about, like, our society has a lot of adoration and applause for the extroverts because they they seem like they've got their stuff together and they're out there, and, and yet so many leaders are truly actually introverted, but they haven't gotten the same kind of recognition. Mm-hmm. And I think that is similar. Like, when you're vulnerable and you show emotions— like I know, I fortunately easily cry whether I'm moved or whether I'm sad. And I don't ever hold back on that. And I and I witness people's responses and it, may, it can make people at first quite uncomfortable because again, their reaction is, I don't know what to do with this person. Is she gonna like, is she melting <laughs> down in front of me? And it's like, and then the second response is, wow, I appreciate your vulnerability so much. So it's in a way I think of it as, exemplifying a being human. And then that mm-hmm. that's part of it. And that you don't have to pretend like you have it all together and project this, like to your point, productivity, accomplishment, blah, 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 with just a robotic existence that we are a rainbow of um, emotions. And, you know, similar to the body, the body speaks to us if we actually pay attention to listen. You know, I often talk about pain is a signal that's just something is happening. It's not something that you want to avoid necessarily. And it's, I think that's a lot like with sadness. People want to avoid it. And it's like, it's part of the rainbow. Like, we're going to be sad. Let's just embrace it, right? Because if we didn't have it, we also wouldn't be able to feel the other um, flip side of it, which is the, you know, more joy and lightness. So can you talk a little bit about emotional regulation? Because I know this is a big part of your research in that um, I've, I've spoken about it on the podcast, but mm. I would love to hear from your expert expertise, like how can people um, learn to emotionally regulate, especially if they grew up and did not have that modeled for them? Certainly didn't, you know, emotions were like, stop feeling that because, you know, it's causing a scene or you don't be sad. Don't do that. You know, how does, how do we as adults learn to better emotionally regulate? In the most dire cases when emotions are so
0: dysregulated, they're causing issues in people's lives, like people are getting into a lot of arguments or hurting themselves, Um, dialectical behavior therapy or other kinds of therapies that involve teaching patients how to regulate emotions with skills. Um, So I would say DBT, something like that is, you know, the number one recommendation for people who, you know, have those issues. But
1: can we just pause there for a minute because sure. I know I've heard a lot about DBT, but I don't know if a lot of uh, people listening. Can you just briefly describe what is involved in that? Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a
0: really excellent therapy. It's very um, very intensive. It's an outpatient psychotherapy that was an, originally made for people with a suicidality, but now it, it's for a range of people with all sorts of interpersonal and emotional disorders. And it involves a, several pieces. Um, one is an individual therapist and also a skill skills group where a weekly skills where we basically learn skills, how to regulate emotions and communicate with people more effectively, like almost just great life skills. And then the whole point of that is to learn the skills in the skills group. And then the therapist helps you integrate those skills in your life. So it's almost just like a really good,
1: It's like a life skill that everybody should be doing. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a really,
0: really good therapy, very effective for, especially for suicidality. Um, it is kind of hard to find in those bigger pieces, but there's a lot of different clinics in the country who have like just the skills group, or you could just download the book on Amazon, um, from Marsha Linehan, who's the developer of it. So, um, that would be like, if you really need help with emotion regulation, that's where I would say to go. But I take a lot of uh, tools and understanding of emotion regulation from there, from DBT. Um, And we understand emotions as, as as I said, signals, right? And they're really, even in the word emotion, it's emotion, it's supposed to move you in your environment so that you satisfy your needs, right? If you're feeling attacked, you're going to get angry so you could get up and protect yourself. Or if, if something is going to hurt you, you get so scared that you run away. Right. It's just supposed to help you navigate your environment in a way that um, satisfies your needs. And so really the the step one is to really learn how to listen to those signals. Right. If they are signals and we're not queuing in on them, we're not listening to the call, we're not going to be able to get our needs met. So in yoga or therapy, or even by yourself, just doing mindfulness practices and noticing, huh, what's going on in my body right now? What do I feel? What are my urges? Do I have an urge to run away? Do I have an urge to cry? Do I have an urge to punch somebody, (laughs) right? What are these like very basic signals that you kind of pick up on that could give you a clue into like how you're feeling at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is, okay, I'm feeling angry okay, what do I need in this moment? Well, it seems like if I'm angry, I'm, I'm needing protection or I need someone to stop doing what they're doing because it's hurting me, right? And then learning how to respond um, to those needs in a way that makes sense for the environment, right? Like protecting yourself when you're talking to your partner might be different than protecting yourself when you're in the middle of the street getting attacked by a stranger, right? So it's really about what what are your needs, learning how to hear the signals and then uh, responding to them in a way that makes sense in the moment
1: so mm, I love that mm-hmm. so with the groups that you um, are working with I'm curious what are what are some kind of hallmark struggles that are almost across the board so I'm imagining mm. for example we live in a society that is very much connected by social media by technology and there's lots of wonderful things and then there's some things that obviously aren't so great. Do you find that across the board that is an area that that people struggle with or is there something else that's really relevant to our modern day world that you just see most people are struggling with right oh, now?
0: Man, big question. There's a couple I think. You bring in social media I think that really a big need that people have is to be seen and loved for who they are, for their authentic selves. And we have no idea how to do that anymore. (laughs) We are screaming out on social media about things that we feel like we're really identifying with and wanting recognition for and protection for. We're spending so much time, especially now in the pandemic, on screens or phones and isolated that I think the, the lack of social connection and really having someone see you and be here for you and vice versa is something that I'm seeing just really diminish quickly over time because of the pandemic, too. But even before that, there's just like they could be people could be surrounded by others. They could do their jobs. Great. They have a family. They are beloved for whatever reasons. But they feel so lonely. And so that's something I've I've really seen. And they just don't know how to communicate their vulnerability and their real needs to others, right? Uh, So that's one major one. And I think another one is a similar one that you brought up, which is if there's some emotions that aren't really, people don't feel comfortable with them, right? They don't like to sit in sadness or fear or any of those vulnerable emotions. So they tack on a secondary emotion Right. We have a primary emotion of sadness and fear or anything like that. And we tack on a secondary emotion of anger. Right. So when people are feeling hurt, rejected, lonely and they feel sad, they might express it in a whole different way. Right. Like yelling at the barista, you know, getting into a text fight with her sister, just something that makes that really almost takes them away from the thing that they're really looking for and so having to like break the, all those patterns down and say okay in that moment what were you actually feeling underneath the anger uh what were you actually needing okay you're actually feeling sad and lonely how can we get you to feel more connected is it yelling at your sister for not answering your text or is it saying hey i really miss you mm-hmm. right so just there's a lot going on, but I, I always see that the the emotional disconnect and loneliness is such a huge thing going on right now.
1: I believe that. Now, all of those types of behaviors can be changed, as we know, because we have a brain that is plastic, and that um, we I I work on this in terms of helping people change and optimize their movement patterns from ones that are less optimal and not as sustainable. But in terms of behavior. Knowing that the brain is plastic, how do how do what are some suggestions you make for people to help with their habitual behavioral tendencies that are suboptimal, like yelling at the like, I mean, obviously the first stage I would imagine is just being able to know that you even do it, like becoming aware of it. Yeah. But what are some of the suggestions you give for people who might be listening and they're like, you know, I have some anger issues. I have some loneliness issues. I have some kind of constipated emotions, but it's just so hardwired. I've been doing this for years. Where do I start to break that habit? Yeah.
0: Good question. I think that as you're kind of pointing out now, awareness is the main thing to start out, right? Think about any habit, right? It And it's just, it's usually like it's part of your routine. There are things in your environment that just are associated that cue up that behavior, right? You see your coffee cup, you drink that coffee, or I see my laptop, I'm sitting there, I'm sitting here slumping my shoulders right now as we speak, right? It's just habits. And first starting to become aware of it so that you could break the habits, really understanding those patterns, like really paying attention. Oh, my shoulders are slumping forward. Oh, when I see my coffee cup, all I want is coffee right now, right? In the moment, and over and over, becoming aware of it—that's really important because the, the main part of changing those habits is inserting another behavior, right? It's, it's we think of it as uh, giving a toolbox of giving yourselves a, a flexible range of different things you can do in the moment that might lead to better outcomes, right? Like if I. Drinking too much coffee. And I'm using these examples. Cause it's really, <laughs> these are all actual habits. If I'm drinking coffee every single day and it's, um, you know, I, I just, I can't break the habit, but it's causing me damage. Like it's increasing my heart rate or I'm not sleeping well. I'm going to say, okay, what do I need? What, what's the outcome I want? Well, I need more energy. But I don't want the other parts, the bad sleep. Okay, so if coffee is my, my go to my one tool that I have to, to get what I need done, which is energy, is there another thing I could introduce to give myself that option, right? Okay. Maybe taking a walk would give me the same kind of energy boost, but won't have the same negative effects. And so in order to insert that into my habits, I have to be really aware of when the habits are going to start, right? I'm looking at my coffee cup. Oh, I'm aware of my urge to drink coffee. Huh. Okay. This is the moment. I'm going to take a walk instead, right? So it's really about awareness and then putting in that alternative behavior that is healthier.
1: Okay. So that's for behavior. So how about people who have self- Ne- like negative self-talk? And that has become like a habit. What mm. are some suggestions? Again, I imagine first you have to become aware of it, but how does somebody layer, A, if they don't actually believe those things? You know, I, I know sometimes it's a fake. I always say say some so much of what we do is fake it till you make it because you have to try something on, even if you haven't yet like kind of bought into it. But what are some suggestions you give people who you know, I, I work with so many different people, a lot of teachers. I don't feel like I have the capability of, you know, going out and getting my business going. They have a lot of self-doubt. And, and mm-hmm. that, that was there way before becoming a teacher. But what are some suggestions for people who have that kind of s- negative self-talk that obviously isn't benefiting them?
0: Yeah. I mean, we treat it just like any other behavior. So it kind of demystifies it. We identify more with these thoughts, like "Oh, I'm a negative person," versus like "I'm a coffee drinker," right? Like we identify with those thoughts, so they kind of feel harder to change. But it's really the same principles: becoming aware of it, right? This is what I did in yoga and therapy. Oh, I'm having those thoughts right on the mat, as well as talking to my barista. Here, the here are those negative talk, self-talk thoughts, right? So just labeling them is a huge part, right? Just giving yourself like even just like a fun name for them. It's like, Oh, there's, um, there's even, it's like the negative talk or the negative Nancy talk. I'm sorry for all the people named Nancy, (laughs) (laughs) but you know what I mean? Just giving it a name so that you, when it comes up, you recognize them as just things that your brain is doing. Right. It's just queuing up that, you know, the, that behavior, that, that habit of thoughts and that, that in itself is huge because it gives you a step back and instead of identifying and seeing through the thoughts, you're taking a step back and just noticing that the thoughts are there. And then you can something different. You can choose to, you know, do all the things that the thoughts would tell you to do, which is, I don't know, doubt yourself. Don't go start a business. Don't talk to that person. Or you could say, Hey, my negative thoughts are here. Ugh. I knew they were going to come in this party they're there i'm just gonna let them hang out there and i'm gonna do something different i'm going to start another behavior i'm going to go talk to that person and do the thing over time and this is part of what we do with the behavioral part of behavioral uh, cognitive behavioral therapies we make someone do the alternative behavior over and over and over again until the person finally learns that the negative self-talks are not real or they're they're from an old habit back in the day when we were in a different caregiving environment, but it doesn't apply anymore. So it's like, okay, every day you're going to try something new. Or every day, if you have the thoughts, nobody likes me, you're going to talk to another person today. You're just going to do it over and over and over again and really log and learn from those experiences and say, hmm, okay, actually, people do like me. <laughs> i have evidence i have enough experience that it shows that those negative talks self-talks or negative thoughts whatever you want to call them negative nancy thoughts are just they're just um they don't fit they don't fit anymore they're not going to tell me anything useful so i'll just let them be there and so we're just going to build new habits on top of those negative self self thoughts so
1: Hmm, i love that now i'm thinking this this all of this Mental therapy, like physical therapy, these are things that everyone should practice, just because that's who we are—both physical and mental and and energetic self. But for people who are really in it deep, so let's just say there's uh, a person or a group, a population that is has a lot of trauma mm-hmm. and and is still living in a major s- state of stress. Yeah, and just to survive, like literally, you know, um, paying the bills, but living, living in it. And, and there are people we know and their populations we know who certainly almost to get into state of mindfulness feels like a luxury. How do you help people at, in that kind of condition that um, really have just multifactorial issues in their environment and in their life, yeah. That are keeping them in high stress state. I I absolutely love working with people with trauma because it's such a
0: it's such a embodied practice, mm-hmm. especially at first, even even in just plain talk therapy. You're right because all the things that we just talked about emotion regulation, a lot of that, a lot of that needs a lot of thought, a lot of like your cognitive capacities to be like, okay, I'm going to think through, I'm going to do the thing, and try to explore and try something new. Right, that takes a lot of um, security right mm-hmm. and a lot of clarity of mind but when we know when emotions get really really high it knocks out those abilities neurologically it just the amygdala goes up and the prefrontal cortex goes down and that person's in fight or flight or freeze mode like their bodies are just in survival mode they're frozen they can't do anything and you can't talk your way out of it right um right so i wouldn't say mindfulness i think I, I would shift to different kinds of mindfulness practices so mind if mindfulness is just like awareness in the moment i wouldn't necessarily necessarily have a very heady kind of practice at that moment when your body's going nuts but we would do these kind of grounding exercises where you use your body to bring attention sharply to the present moment in a safe way right mm-hmm. i've used know with trauma patients we stand up and we march right get the body moving pay attention to how your feet feels right now that's all you're doing we're marching recognizing we're in safe space we're in my office right or sour candies have been used um really intense smelling essential oils right or sometimes ice
1: And, and what would be is that because it's stimulating a different part of the brain? To get them out of that stress
0: yes because when someone is in that high of a stress sometimes they dissociate so their mind is mm. basically going out of reality out of the present moment right fight or flight you're it's so much that your brain is the the image that we give is um when your computer overheats the fan goes and everything just freezes right that's what your body does and your mind does when you're in fight or flight mode in an intense way just poof, gone right so Although that is a particular coping strategy that sometimes can help. Obviously, if you're living in that, it's not gonna help you work your way out of these problems. So we, we bring attention to the, to your physical to, to sensations, using your five senses to bring you back into this moment. So smelling the, the ice on, in your hands, sometimes the marching, right? Well, just bring your attention to the moment bring you out of that dissociative fight or flight state and then say, okay, what do you need right now to keep yourself safe? Right. Mm. Obviously this is easier when you're in a place that you're safer. If the person is in a situation where they're being abused or something like that, right. When there's actually stressful situations, we still will use those grounding skills. Cause sometimes that can really kick in. Like, okay, I can't freeze right now. I got to get out of the house or, That it just those grounding techniques will give you that moment of bringing back to the moment so you get back in the driver's seat and can navigate better. So,
1: wow, I like that. So, it's like you get to have the decisions, you get to have the decision making ability, even if it's for just a moment. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, maybe you, you know, take care of yourself in a different way than just becoming more victimized or whatever it might be. Absolutely, yeah. So, for people who are not at this level, but just you know, in our life, in our world today, which mm-hmm. is unless you're living, you know isolated and unaware, it, there you could be subjected to kind of daily reminders of um, uncertainty and chaos. What are some techniques you would recommend that everyone could really benefit from and would be easy to employ? in addition to those mindfulness tips that you talked about in terms of like pausing, noticing, Grounding. Anything else that you could um, tell the listeners that they could perhaps utilize and and start putting in the day, and it might be something like, "Hey, don't watch the news right before you go to bed." I mean, that seems like an obvious one, but Mm -hmm, a lot of people do that. You know, they're like scrolling right before. And I, can you talk about like why that would not be a good idea? We know it, but like from a neuroscience standpoint, why doing you know there's certain behaviors we shouldn't really do at certain times of the day because it's not going to benefit our nervous system. Sure. I mean, uh, two two
0: suggestions that popped up in my mind as we we're talking. One is that it, this is more relevant to this time right now, because I feel it today. I mean, I I've, I've just fell into the trap today. We got into a place of isolation and staying home and not doing stuff. And I don't know about you, but I feel like this is quicksand. I feel like I'm a very social, active person. And the idea of going out and doing something new feels like like forget exhausting (laughs) exhausting it's like we we crave
1: it and then all of a sudden we're like actually I like being at home and it's like (laughs) what's going on what is that about yeah totally that's
0: uh, it's bad I I would say (laughs) that what we know from research is that uh, that staying active and engaged especially in meaningful activities is the key to staying healthy physically mentally spiritually all these all these different things so although we had all of these reasons to withdraw and stay at home and not and hibernate doing, th- doing things engaging in things that you care about i mean not just looking at the news and instagram all day and i say that because i just spent an hour doing that but actually taking a walk actually doing something that you used to do an exercise class uh seeing a friend that you hadn't seen all pandemic right of course safely but really engaging in those things from both a physical standpoint right you know introducing like diversity in your routines and body and mind right like getting the circulation mental or physical right it's huge it's it, that's what we need to survive that's what we need to really thrive too so really doing more things instead of just like that hiding and oh i just need to rest and slip back on my couch and watch hours of netflix Right. We kind of know that numbing hibernation feeling, but so breaking out of that, even if there's like a little hill to climb of that exhaustion. So that's number one. Um, and number two, just a simple mindfulness practice, like getting really getting back in tune with our bodies and, and minds, put away the phone, <laughs> try, try to limit the amount of social media you, you do. And then try to really be in the present moment for just like one minute but have that be part of your routine. So we know how to do that with yoga, right? We have a mat, we come to the mat, we do a downward facing dog or a child's pose every single class. And that's a moment where you could see the shifts in day to day, right? If you're feeling really tired, cranky, motivated, excited, you're gonna see that when you get into that same child's pose. Um, same thing with your routine. If you don't do yoga, then every time you brush your teeth, You know, take that two minutes and really be there with the physical sensations and your breath, right? How does it taste in your mouth? What, you know, what are you feeling? What are you feeling in your body? What's going on in your mind, right? Really be there with that practice, whether it's child's pose, whether it's brushing your teeth, whether it's your drive to work, you know, but I think when people first start giving them a short window of like one minute or two minutes or three minutes in the routine helps. So, cause then they go, Oh, I have to learn how I'm, I'm so busy. What I have to sit on a cushion for an hour every day. It's like, no, you just pick a thing you do every single day, make that your mindfulness moment and just mm. check in with yourself. If you want to call it your daily check-in, that's it.
1: Yeah. And, and the reality is we need this more now than ever because our mind is so distracted and distractible because we are in this very, very, I just, blitzkrieg of distractions yeah. that are coming at us all the time. And so we have to purposely carve that out. And I, and I love your suggestion, just starting off with a minute that everybody's got a minute. But if you could put your phone down or whatever it is and be still quiet and observe for one minute, that is starting that that chain reaction that we want to create, which we actually are in inside our head in the driver's seat versus letting our Mind just go in so many different directions, and that just makes you feel scattered and tired and anxious, and you know, insert all of the above. Yeah. So it's a practice. I think this is the other thing to really um, drive home is that just like everything else, we're we're not going to get it, but we're we're working on it. It's a practice to really inhabit our body and our mind more of the moments of the day than we were even the day before. You know, so it's it's like little improvements really make big changes. Mm-hmm. So, um, this has been so lovely. We could talk forever, but I'd love for you just to, um, send us off with like what you're working on now, what your goals are, what, what do you like, what do you want to do for yourself? What would you like to have, you know, offered offerings for, for others?
0: Yeah. I mean, the main thing, um, I'm doing things like this. This is so great. Like just connecting to other like-minded yes. people. So, um, just living in line with the things I love, which is connecting to people and, you know, th- having cool thoughts. Right now, the main thing I'm working on is a podcast called A Little Help for Our Friends that I Mm. co host with Jacqueline Trumbull. She was on The Bachelor and now she's in my um, program at Duke. Um, And we really want to bring attention to how much mental health is about friends and family and loved ones involved. Like we're so, we think of everything health, mental health, whatever, as this individual struggle that we need to achieve. But it, it, we're so connected to the people around us and every and we, our health affects other people's and vice versa. And we really try to bring attention to that. And in our podcast, we talk about different kinds of mental health issues, um, stories, and we share a lot of tips with, from both our clinical and our research background about how can loved ones help people who are struggling with mental health. So that's um, my main I love thing. That.
1: Yeah. That's great. So everybody go check out that podcast. Yeah what a wonderful name too. Yeah. <laughs> everybody gets by with a little help from their friends. So well, thank you so much, Kibby. It's great to meet you. Fellow Duke graduate. Duke yeah. e. You're living in Durham, so I'm slightly jealous. Mm-hmm. So everybody check out Kibi. You'll feel, see all the places to find you on our show notes, but you're on Instagram. What is your Instagram handle?
0: A little help for our friends. So oh, all one word. All right. Yeah.
1: There you go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to offer your wisdom and experience and expertise. I know everybody listening is going to benefit. So thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. And for, yeah, for everybody listening, as always, I'm pulling for you.